0: When we publish something in the LeMay Center or across the Air Force, uh, it is uh, is consumed, translated, and disseminated in China uh, almost immediately.
1: As a reminder to listeners, all topics discussed are unclassified, and views expressed by guests or hosts are not necessarily the position of the United States Air Force or the Department of Defense. Our topic for discussion today's podcast is Agile Common Employment and China's reaction to the development of that doctrine. Our guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Justin Settles. Lieutenant Colonel Settles serves as a deputy director of the China Aerospace Studies Institute, also known as CASI. CASI's mission is to advance the understanding of the strategy, doctrine, operating concept, capabilities, personnel, training, and organization of China's aerospace forces and the civilian and commercial infrastructure that supports them. Lieutenant Colonel Settles is a China Aerospace Doctrine Subject Matter Expert with four tours in the Indo-PACOM area. Sir, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Oh, Switch, thank you very much for uh, having me. This is uh, this is excellent. I mean, uh, this is what Cassie's is all about. It's uh, doing research, education, you know, across PME, but also uh, across the Air Force, Space Force, uh, Joint Force, to advise when we're trying to develop plans and strategy, and we're trying to assess the strategy and plans through exercises and war games. You know, it's just uh, any opportunity to, to talk about China and uh, improve the, increase the sense of urgency uh, among the force, and then to, uh, to increase the level of understanding.
1: Well, thank you for being here. Um, and it's fortuitous timing for all this. Uh, just this week, the Air Force operationalized the ACE concept Um, So that was uh, just signed here June 23rd by General Brown. Um, Before that, obviously, as you know, the ACE Doctrine note was was signed and published December of this past year. Um, And then we here at the LeMay Center have been continuing to develop ACE Doctrine uh, and we're planning on re-releasing a new version of that ACE Doctrine note coming this summer. There's a lot to talk about, but really what I wanna focus on is uh, China's reaction to, to our development of Agile Combat Employment and, and has there been a reaction to, to our development of Agile Combat Employment?
0: Well, what, what does Agile Combat Employment mean to you? As somebody who's been working it for a long time?
1: Well, the, the definition would be a proactive and reactive operational scheme maneuver executed within relevant threat timelines to generate combat air power. So that means to me, Uh, being able to survive um, uh, the the offense that China or some other country would would provide while being able to to react and then generate air power again Um, so whether that be small UAS whether that be hypersonic ballistic missiles whatever threat they provide to our our enduring locations primarily, but now our, our contingency locations as we disperse, uh, it's, it's to disperse away from our dur- enduring locations to, to um, uh, complicate the enemy's targeting scenario to be able to generate combat air power.
0: It, well, it's, it's the reason why I asked that is because I think it's, it's important to, you know, continue to, uh, to educate people about, about what uh, ACE, is, uh, ACE is for us as a concept. And, uh, and then I'm struck because after I was medically grounded from flying... They made me a logistics guy, and as a logistics readiness officer, dealing with kind of the deployment and sustainment process of, of forces forward. The uh, obviously ACE introduces a, a significant logistics challenge in trying to take, you know, the the fixed basing that we have and uh, and uh, move to, you know, uh, ACC commander. I right? said fifty locations just in in the indo pacom AOR. Um, and so I think about, uh, about the shift from kind of expeditionary uh, air forces and uh, deploying sustaining forces forward, where a lot of times we pushed to establish enterprise logistics, uh, and then we were focused on individual units and their readiness to, to deploy to those places where we had already laid in a lot of enterprise logistics. Um, and so I think about that you know, applying to the Chinese example. Uh, and then the second piece is about, is about C two, and um, and I think that uh, an interesting there's an interesting linkage that is not always made on the the linkage between ACE and join all domain operations, uh, and that idea of the the C two challenge is is actually more similar than we give it credit for that by. The, uh, the integration of operational capabilities across a geographic span um, has similar elements to uh, integration of operational capabilities across domains. Uh, and it's something that, uh, uh, and some of the solutions are, are the same. And so uh, that's the other piece when I think about China, and I think about it on the logistics side, uh, I think about how they look at at ACE in, in the United States, and I think about um, about how they try to integrate across geography and and uh, and deeper in kind of the the domain stack
1: um, in uh, in China. So you bring up you bring up a great point with the discussion about logistics, and and I'm going to pivot here a little bit, and I'll I'll try to bring us back to this agile common deployment discussion. Um, uh, since you brought up logistics, obviously with agile common employment, we talk about a, a push logistics system versus a pull logistics system, and and we've really um, we've really worked hard on perfecting uh, or working towards perfecting our logistics system uh, in the global war on terror and and uh, developing um, uh, new logistics methodologies in agile common employment and in the analysis therein. Um, China hasn't fought a war since 1979. Uh, do they realize the challenges there in, in logistics to be able to fight a war? Um, and I, I ask that question because uh, we're seeing Um, the logistics system being challenged on the Russian offensive in Ukraine um, with the amount of trucks available, with uh, the rail line differences, right? We're seeing all those logistic challenges. Has has China looked at what's happening in Ukraine and and reanalyzed their logistics system? And are they applying any of those lessons learned? Uh, That's a good question. I I think
0: that, uh, you know, the Chinese is one metric that I always think is interesting that the now, In the the PLA Air Force, the Chinese Air Force, you know, not a single member of the Chinese Air Force has combat experience, uh, and is not fighting, you know, uh, fighting war since 1979. And I think their their last uh, surface-to-air missile engagement was in 1987, um, as kind of the the most recent uh, operational experience that that uh, they have in their force. That uh, it is. Uh, something that they recognize, um, but this is a doctrine podcast. You're a doctrine guy. The, the Chinese are reading our doctrine and that of our allies and partners and the Russians uh, trying to find the lessons learned. So they've seen the experiences with the first Gulf War in the 90s, um, seeing the way that we operated in Kosovo, uh, then with the during that campaign, we bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, Serbia, that the Chinese don't believe was an accident. So the, they look at that as a not just how we were operating, but they believe that it was the United States trying to uh, intentionally attack and target China. And so it created this sense of urgency uh, 20 plus years ago to improve their systems, you know, improve their training, improve their platforms, uh, in order to try to uh, uh, respond in case they were in some sort of military engagement with us. Uh, so they, uh, when we publish something in the Lemay Center or across the Air Force, um, it is uh, it is consumed, translated, and disseminated in China uh, almost immediately. And so they are uh, they are tracking. You know, they are tracking what we're doing uh, because we're the best. And they know that we are, you know, we are the the most powerful fighting force that's ever existed on the planet. Um, and we've gone through lots of lessons learned during the Cold War, you know, especially the last two decades um, of of a lot of expeditionary operations that uh, that they are paying attention to. And then in the Ukraine example, I think it's um, not, I don't think it's a great example. Uh, you know, we, people bring up the idea of a paper tiger, right? For, I was actually gonna go uh, that direction after for, Yeah, for China. Um, but I think that the hollowing out of the Russian military you see as, uh, as largely due, and from my perspective, to corruption, and, uh, and this uh, idea of readiness. Uh, they were pursuing specific metrics but metrics that were not related to to achieving success on the battlefield. And uh, the Chinese system uh, may have been more like that 20 years ago or 30 years ago, um, and uh, where actually military units in China uh, had to generate some of the revenue for their own budgets. So it created this incentive, these perverse incentives to, um, to essentially be corrupt or to divert some of your focus and resources onto engaging in in the economy, trying to uh, generate revenue just to keep the lights on and and to get things done. But today, the the Chinese took those lessons, and especially from um, from the Gulf War and from the the war in Kosovo, uh, that they needed to not be in the situation that Russia is in today. So they've spent the last two decades being more honest with themselves about their level of readiness uh, still takes a long time they're building from a low level of capability and a low level of readiness that today uh, they are they are further along uh, than uh, than the russians certainly it's also just a very different uh, situation because a the russians invading ukraine they're going Outside of their established uh, lines of communication and and supply chains, in order to invade someone else, and you have to there's a different skill set that's required to do that. Um, and in China, you know, most of the conflict, if there's conflict around their periphery. You know, the uh, possibility of of the South China Sea and the East China Sea, Korean Peninsula, the Indian border, uh, all those areas are they may engage in military aggression, but they're using internal lines of communication, internal supply chains. Even in potential invasion of Taiwan, they are using lots of their own, uh, lots of their own internal supply chains and lines of communication in order to support that operation, but they'd still have to cross the Taiwan Strait, uh, doing, conducting an invasion. That's where you're exponentially increasing the logistics challenges, but because of that, they've recognized that they have shortfalls and they've been working to, uh, to try to close those. So it's something that um, uh, they probably started from a much lower level than the Russians did. Um, but uh, they've been more serious about identifying and correcting the, the readiness issues.
1: Really interesting because you, you bring up the, the logistical challenges and the fact that they're reading our doctrine and... And um, have they mirrored any of our doctrine in application, specifically in um, uh, joint planning, um, in in logistics planning? Um, and, and I know you you often make the joke behind behind closed doors that you know all China has to do to encrypt their doctrine is write it in Chinese, um, uh, and you know we don't have that culture. To read their doctrine. So, from from somebody who's who's read uh, a significant amount of their doctrine, do they mirror any of our doctrine in in application? And then, what specifically lessons have they taken away? I I think there
0: there are two um, there are two sides of that. One is that uh, is that when they read about um, about ACE and in particular, they they are looking for opportunities to um, you know to understand it and then potentially to exercise it so ha- actually trying to uh, look at how you would support um, forces in uh, in more austere locations um, you know, trying to minimize the amount of uh, of personnel that would be required to support that and actually continue to enable operations um, the other Part of it that they are looking at is the the threat that we see when when we're looking at uh, ACE as a um, as as an operational concept. Uh, the is that how you phrase it as an operational concept? Uh, uh, operational scheme maneuver. Operational concept, scheme maneuver, absolutely. as you describe it. Yep. Uh, as a, an operational scheme of maneuver, the uh, we're looking at a. Uh, at a comprehensive threat to our fixed basing, to our main operating bases, you know primarily in in Asia but anywhere, um, that um, that our our bases be because we have used the uh, economy as of scale to, um, to garrison into places like Kadena and, and Yokota uh, and Guam as these, as these massive uh, bases with lots of diverse capabilities, uh, that's increased our level of vulnerability just by aggregating those forces. Uh, but, uh, but the Chinese believe in some sort of military engagement, any sort of military engagement uh, with the United States or our allies and partners, uh, potential partners, the, uh, that their bases will be vulnerable as well. So they're thinking through the same problem set and then likely the fact that we're talking more about vulnerability and talking about schemes of maneuver. And they're saying, oh, well, we're seeing the same problem set. It's increasing the salience of the threat to them um, as they see our um, our increased willingness to to confront and to challenge uh, their their aggressive uh, threats and rhetoric and, and actions, uh, that uh, that they're willing to um, you know that they're exploring those schemes of maneuver themselves, and then um, and then potentially using the the same model or same kind of uh, of idea of a, a threat to fix spacing, now they're exploring m- their own options for it. So we've seen an increase in them doing, you know, kind of hopping between between bases um, or hopping between uh, pretty built up commercial, uh, commercial infrastructure, commercial airfields near their, uh, their military airfields in many ways, the similar ways that we do day to day in in the Air Force and the DoD. Um, So the the first layer of just kind of um, off station operations for for aviation, then the second of an expeditionary, deploying a unit where you have more uh, enterprise support, Uh, and then the third of actually looking at austere uh, locations. But if you think about this, especially the density of airfields in in southern China and eastern China, military airfields and uh, commercial airfields, uh, I actually look at their posture more like the way that, um, that the United States had our basing posture during the, the strategic air command days uh, during the Cold War where we had, um, we had bomber squadrons and, and tanker squadrons Um, and fighter squadrons spread out over more bases in the United States. And so they're, um, over time, we've aggregated, and I think that they have maintained more bases overall um, with a more spread out kind of of, um, orientation. And so they have uh, bought down the requirements to do really austere, kinds of activities that we talk about during agile combat employment in Southeast Asia or South Asia. Um, the uh, so that the requirements are lower, if, the, if that makes sense. Um, and so they're working on improving those things. But it's a much easier problem set than than we talk about. Um, and the C2 is uh, is easier too when you're talking about more fixed infrastructure uh, the, uh, uh, and when you're flying, you're within your own country. So all all of the conversation about the Chinese executing ACE, um, I don't say all of it, but the, uh, you know, the vast majority of conversation and exercise and everything is within their own country. Uh, And even how they would expect to employ it would still be within their own country. And so there's a, there's a lot, of logistics support in particular, but also communications redundancy that is laid in that they don't even have to, uh, you know, they don't have to deal with the same problems that we do when we're trying to uh, project power to, uh, to respond to their ingression into the Indo-Paycom AOR.
1: Is the Chinese military uh, a professional military? Does it have an NCO core and does it has it modeled itself after our, our model in that application?
0: No, it's uh, they they function the way that 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 many or most uh, other countries do and they and they don't. um, They do not value uh, the the NCO Corps and don't enable the NCO Corps the way that um, you really need in a modern military and that uh, and really the best practices that that we've displayed over um, over decades. And I think that uh, there is a there is a structural problem with the um, the way that units are organized in in China where you have a dual command system with a squadron commander, for example, or group commander and a political officer, a political commissar um, as a as a dual command system. And, uh, and having a commander that's responsible for operations and a political officer that handles many of, many of the other elements, it is a, uh, while most of the officers are members of the Chinese Communist Party, um, and that gives you additional kind of both cachet and, and uh, in some ways more formal roles in, um, in a, an organization, regardless of rank, the uh, very uh, much smaller portion of the enlisted corps uh, are members of the Chinese Communist Party. And as a result, they are, uh, you know, it just continues to reduce that role. Um, But they recognize so they recognize the importance and they've talked about how it is a known problem that they do not enable their NCO core, both training and development, and then actually enabling them in the formation, um, so they recognize it, but it uh, it doesn't mean that the steps that they've they've taken have been serious ones in order to in order to correct the problem
1: so that that pivots me again to another great question. Um, when we start to talk about agile common employment in the proactive and reactive scheme maneuver proactive side, there's some kind of political trigger or, or some kind of messaging that's telling us, okay, we need to disperse well ahead of of the attack, mm-hmm. and then the reactive scheme maneuver. You can still maneuver while being attacked, right? Um, but the the uh, the enabler, the the key enabler of command and control is mission command with the delegated authorities therein, and so when you are when you are at your contingency location, you have the appropriate delegated authorities to be able to accomplish whatever mission you're required to do at that location, um, whether that be through a five paragraph order, op type type thing, uh, or a multi-day ATO, whatever the methodology ends up being in, in application. The, the question is, with that architecture of a squadron commander and a political officer, when they're disconnected from any kind of C2, do you foresee, your, your opinion, do you foresee uh, issues in their ability to operate in a disconnected environment should lines of communication and or C2 be challenged for, on their end? I, I do, uh, I really see that as a, as a potential problem because it goes
0: back to the lack of operational experience. Um, so you may, have a, uh, you may have a wartime structure where uh, you have streamlined some of the, the command authorities, uh, but in some ways the, the nature of the modern battlefield, modern warfare is to move more quickly and potentially move so quickly that they are, um, and to be somewhat, uh, somewhat vague in the transition between uh, between peacetime and wartime. Right, we we are in that gray area um, more often and for and for longer. That um, it has it creates the opportunity, I think, to um, to not paralyze an organization, but to disrupt kind of a most efficient and effective flow um, of uh, information and, and direction coming from those organizations. And I think that's a real, a real risk that they run. Um, but they've also, you know, again, they've recognized this as a problem. Uh, and I see two pathways where they are, uh, that they're pursuing in parallel um, pushing down authorities to lower level, but because of having a uh, culture and structures of uh, that were more centralized and having less authority for, uh, for subordinate units and subordinate leaders, they, you know, devolving authorities to the, what we would consider the wing level or the, uh, or the brigade level is a, um, in their system, Uh, that's still not getting the job done or distributed operations that we would, um, you know, that we would envision for ourselves. And so um, it is, uh, I think that's going to be a real struggle for them. The other idea is to use technology to enable those things. And so using, you know, trying to use, they talk about, about uh, intelligentization, you know, using artificial intelligence um, to, um, to streamline, streamline processes, but, but basically to enable C2. And, uh, and I think, as a way to skip echelons in the in the process. So instead of enabling, uh, devolving authorities, making it easier for higher level authorities, to direct more operations at the um, at the tactical level through through algorithms and um, and uh, new technologies that have been developed, and so it's a it's a sneaky way to um, to achieve the same effects that they want to have as much control as possible um, and potentially as much as much situational awareness as possible, while um, still not empowering subordinate leaders. Um, and I think that uh, uh, there's a right balance there that can be struck and that obviously we're looking at, you know, AI and, and uh, new technologies as well and, and in the C2 space uh, at the same time. But the, uh, having that balance of being able to use the technologies to enable uh, airmen on the ground rather than, uh, you know, rather than trying to skip uh, other echelons of command is uh, is something that, um, at the end of the day, I think we're we're going to do it better, because we do, you know, because we do uh, do it better, enabling uh, our tactical level leaders, uh, both
1: culturally and, and structurally and everything else. Interesting. So, one of the uh, one of the initiatives that Agile Common Employment has developed is the is the concept of multi-capable airmen. Um, mm-hmm not necessarily doing doing uh, uh, more with less, um, but speci- specified career fields being uh, empowered to do uh, uh, specified tasks. Um, is it your understanding that they don't have the same kind of trust and empowerment of their people of their lower, lower, lower ranking airmen or, or equivalent um, that we do, right, we empower we empower our, our uh, you know, our tactical leaders. We empower our our young airmen, our senior NCO corps to to accomplish the mission. Um, for, so, from your perspective, it is everything is top down driven. Is that is that a correct analysis of that then? So,
0: I I think that um, I don't know when we think about multi capable airmen, um, the uh, I look at multi capable airmen, you know, not as do more with less, but do a lot more with what you have and it's a um, it is because it is a direct kind of challenge to the task organization that we've that we've had in the past but also um, you know you are you're uh, by a factor multiplying the uh, the amount of logistics output uh, and kind of just kind of uh, support output that you that is required to enable the same number of operations and so the uh, uh, you are uh, but from that standpoint we have a a we have the best i think the best trained airmen the best trained military personnel in the world and so the empowerment and it starts with investment in training uh, and respecting and uh, and recognizing the critical role uh, so that you do your you can do your primary job better, um, and are better integrated into the into the systems, uh, and then we're going to trust and invest in additional skill sets for uh, for airmen uh, and you know and guardians and across the joint force, the in order to execute those. And so I think that, um, from one perspective, I would expect that um, that the that a Chinese formation, one, they're not, well, one, they're in, at the individual airman level, the individual building block of a military member, um, they're not going to be, you know, enabled with technology at the local level, they're not gonna be invested in the same level of training. Um, and they recognize that and they're, and they're pursuing it, but what? Um, but it's, it's not gonna happen, you know, probably in my lifetime. But it's something they are, they are um, uh, but, potentially their system offers some flexibility where the idea of, uh, of one, you need to get things, you need to get things done. And because we have, if we have the organization we do, you know, the, the U.S. military is still a bureaucracy that we have a, uh, what it says on the unit manning document. And, you know, that's what, uh, you know, that's what we train to. And that's what we prepare for, uh, along with the other, Pieces of guidance, but it's something that uh, sometimes we feel hamstrung by uh, by our own uh, level of preparation. We were so organized in trying to set up a particular force and task organization that uh, it can be difficult for us to, uh, you know, culturally and and organizationally to get beyond that. Uh, The to allow people to have the training to, you know, and allow an airman. We're so focused on compliance with, a, with a, an AFI for a, uh, a material management, a supply NCO that all of their focus is on compliance and less uh, in their daily garrison tasks that um, one innovation can, be, uh, can take a hit, can be a risk to your ability to deliver what your boss is expecting and then the expansion of additional skill sets, um, in order to be more of a, a multi capable wearman, um, all of those things, there, there are some tensions that we still find that I see within our own force. Uh, but what, uh, so the, the Chinese system, if you have more of a of a top down process where your boss tells you to go do, um, then the, the quality is going to be lower potentially with people who are not as well trained in, in any tasks or any jobs um, that uh, compared with our airmen, um, but potentially may be able to execute it. And the other element that is not well understood, I think, across our, our force is that if the conflicts that we see as potential in, in the Indo-PACOM AOR uh, involving China are, they're a home game for China. And so the idea of a, uh, of the Chinese leveraging not just the, not just the military logistics structure, but the defense industrial base that, you know, with the emergency powers of the government, whether it's a state owned enterprise in China or even a private business in China, um, instead of needing to, for us to use contracting and show up with a bag of money and say, you know, I want this, these goods, these services delivered to a remote place. their the leadership and the local uh, officials from those, uh, from those suppliers from those vendors are, are going to show up and ask them what they want, uh, because of the emergency powers of the government and it's that uh, kind of national defense mobilization uh, in China, and, uh, and you know, military civil fusion where they're, uh, where they're leveraging those, um, you know, those goods and services. And so it, it means that some of what um, what we would be delivering f- by airmen primarily um, and multi-capable airmen trying to do more functions uh there are potentially uh if we're you know executing uh, operations and um and the chinese military is operating from their own from chinese territory it is a um it, it reduces the amount of requirements and increases the number of organizations that are delivering that. Um, so it, it ends up seeming more like, again, more like the expeditionary process, more like uh, we've seen in the support enterprise and the CENTCOM AOR over the last 20 years for our operations, where a lot of those contracts and a lot of that support was already laid in before we uh, landed with
1: our, uh, with our aircraft. Um, thank you so much for your, your information your and your time today. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Deciphering Doctrine podcast. This podcast is produced by the LeMay Center, mixed by Air University Public Affairs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.